0: to my little friend. I believe it is episode 57 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast that every once in a while exists. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. That's right. um, The podcast, in theory, is not defunct. It is still here. I just have an uncomfortably busy life in my work and study and family and will pop in when I have the chance to share something, hopefully, of interest when it comes to theology, uh, scripture, philosophy, social issues, or whatever I happen to be thinking about at the time. Earlier this year, in 2021, not that long ago, a couple of months, I was privileged to, as I have in the past, spoken at the annual conference of the Conditional Immortality Association of New Zealand, which is kind of an awkward theology nerd type name, but it was a good gathering, and I got to share some thoughts about, well, you'll, you'll hear what I got to share some thoughts about, and I hope that you find them interesting as well. Enjoy. So my title is very trippy, Death, Fear, Hell, and Doubt. So there are two views of human nature. I want to set this scene a little bit. And incidentally, this is part of an ongoing effort on my part, and I did it last time I was here, that when I speak to a group of conditionalists, I don't want to just stand in front of you and say, here are some arguments for conditional immortality. You've probably heard them, and you've probably already agree with me. So I want to be a little bit more useful than that. So I want to set the scene. Tell a bit of the backstory, I'll do that here. and it's a backstory that I think you are familiar with. so there are, there are at least two, I don't want to say there are just two, but there are at least two quite different views of human persons and human destiny within the Christian faith. According to one view, human beings are in some way immortal. We either are or we have Immaterial souls that inhabit these bodies, and those souls are intimately related to those bodies until those bodies die, because the body is immortal. But to quote, the body is mortal. Not yet. Yes, yeah, sorry, getting ahead of myself. But to quote from the Westminster, you're listening. That's good. But to quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I quote souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, return immediately to God who gave them, end quote. And they go on to talk about the souls of the, of the righteous going to the highest heavens, awaiting the resurrection, while the souls of the lost are cast into hell, where they are tormented until the day of judgment, and then, of course, afterwards forever. Call this view dualism. Referring to two basic and very different parts of the human being, body and soul. And combine it with the notion that everyone will always live in some form, somewhere. Now in this view, although the body is not alive without a soul, the soul can be alive without a body. And once, once the body dies, that's what will happen. And this is the sense in which the soul is immortal. It doesn't die with the body, but it goes on to its next stop along the way to eternity. And then when Christ returns and this age draws to a close, the dead bodies will be raised and the souls of human beings will be attached to a body once more. And you'll either go to an eternal heaven of glory or to an eternal hell of suffering. And C.S. Lewis was talking about this one time and his summary was you have never seen a mere mortal because no one is a mere mortal in his view. An alternative view is the one that I hold because I hold it I think it's right. On this view we are material beings made up of the stuff of the physical universe and I think that this is well expressed in biblical terms when God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and then breathed into him, bringing this sculpture to life. When God declared to Adam, you are dust. We have this breath of life in us on loan from God like all living creatures, but there is no ghost in the machine ready to depart if the machine breaks down. There's no illusion of mortality here we appear to be frail vulnerable and mortal because we are if our body dies then we are dead and the only way that we can go on living again is if by some divine miracle our body were to come back to life out of death out of decay out of dust something that now seems utterly incredible to me but miracles happen Because God loves us and God gave his Son to become one of us, to identify with us and to die for us and conquer death, rising to an immortal life. If we place our trust in him, if our allegiance is to him, then when he returns, he will raise us to share in the eternal life that he has. Those who do not belong to him, who reject him and who turn away, will face the reality of eternal loss and will one day be no more. This view, call it conditional immortality, is what we think the scriptures teach, and I think it's true. But the truth doesn't always make you happy. This is true in life in general, and it is true in theology. There are consequences of thinking this way, and they are not all pleasant. Believing that we are material beings, not believing in an immortal soul which goes marching on to be with the choir invisible above, makes death harder. And I don't mean it makes dying harder. Dying is no harder or, or easier than it was otherwise. It makes the concept of death much harder. I think it does. We can admit that. It doesn't make our view less true. But it happens to be the case. Being a Christian and holding on to a dualistic view of human nature so that Christ receives our soul when our body dies, and being able to stand up at the funeral of someone we loved and say that they are now experiencing heavenly joy, provides comfort, real comfort. But, and this is unpleasant to tell people, it is a stolen comfort. It is an illicit comfort. It does not reflect the teaching of Scripture, in spite of what so many Christians believe. In addition to coming to this realization through the study of Scripture, I also came to see that for many fellow Christians, this is not welcome news. You know this. You would think it would be welcome because Christians should rejoice to discover what Scripture teaches. No, it's not welcome. It is unwelcome and not, as one might think, because other Christians have studied the scripture and that has led them in a different direction. Very occasionally that might be true. People do come to different conclusions after all. But often they have done no study of the scripture on this issue at all, and yet they still react very strongly when they encounter our position I have a very keen interest in psychology. In fact, I've mentioned to some of you years ago, I studied theology and philosophy, but just recently I've returned to study psychology. I know that people don't like to feel like they're being analyzed. I don't like it either. They don't want to think that people are peering into their motives. But I've come to think that so many of us, whether we're Christians or not, usually deceive us, usually deceive ourselves all the time about our real motives. We'll tell the best sounding story about how we arrived at the position we now hold, as though we remember and know exactly how we arrived at it when we usually don't. And we believe that story, even if it's not true at all. That's because we often don't know why we believe what we do. We don't know all the underlying causes of our beliefs and attitudes. They are invisible to us. They fly just below the radar of our awareness. And if we knew what they were, we might even be embarrassed. You think you started going to that youth group because you thought that it would help you grow spiritually. The Holy Spirit led you that way. But actually... If it wasn't for those two very hot young ladies you saw when you went along that one time, amazingly, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have nudged you in that direction. You don't know that, but it's true. And if you knew that, you might might think, I don't want to tell people that. We often don't know what actually drove us to a decision. We just don't. Giving up the belief that those we love are now in joy with Christ and that we will join them when our body is in the grave, is so very grim, and our desire rails against that denial. We don't necessarily know that that's what's doing the work, but it is. The truth, not the cold-hard scientific secular truth that has cast off the superstition of religion, but the truth expressed in Holy Scripture itself is much more difficult to cope with than many of us, probably all of us, would like. And we don't have to pretend otherwise. The thought of our own non-existence when we die is inconceivable to us. I don't mean we can't imagine that it's true. I just mean there is no way to imagine what it's like because it's not like anything. What makes this gloomy, mortal state of affairs even worse is that as well as death itself being a genuinely terrifying and dark thing once we start to view it through biblical eyes, scripture, after all, calls death an enemy, one of the vices that we have, even as people who know the truth about Christ, is the vice of doubt. Now, don't get me wrong. There are ways in which being critically minded and skeptical, doubting in that sense, is very healthy. And we should do it. We don't just believe everything we hear. The stereotypes about faith are not true. If something sounds fishy, maybe it's not true. Maybe someone has their wires crossed when they're telling a story. Maybe they're deluded or maybe they are a liar. We must not be gullible. In fact, being gullible, for example, about the claims of miracles isn't just bad practice for us. It brings the church into disrepute if the claims are found to be false and we have believed them. Okay, so doubt's okay. But then, well, then there is a doubt that is not so conducive to finding the truth and which is bad for us. In Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus met with his dumbfounded disciples and told them to meet him at a mountain in Galilee. And so they did later on in Matthew. When they met Jesus there... In chapter 28, verse 17, we read this. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. You know, this was, for them, the second time that they had seen Jesus alive again. There could not have been any mistaken identity. They weren't relying on having witnessed an event years ago, briefly, of someone performing an act so that they might now be looking at a different person. Yes, people can and very often are mistaken when they rely on eyewitness testimony like that. And some people point to that evidence and say, see look, the disciples were using eyewitness testimony and memory and we know that's faulty. Not under those circumstances it's not. These were men who spent the better part of several years in Jesus' close company, and they knew him well. They were his companions. And they all saw him nailed to a cross for everyone to see and to die right in front of them. And yet, now for the second time after his death, they were looking at him again with their own eyes and listening to him speak, hearing his voice, as he had so many times during those years that they were with him he was alive again and they could all see it but some doubted why? in spite of outstanding evidence they doubted that's not a rational doubt all the evidence clearly showed that they should have believed but they doubted this is an emotional doubt this is just too good to be true I can't believe this, and I'm sure that I'm just going to wake up, and it's all going to be taken away again. My, my senses, the evidence, my eyes—it's all—it's a lie. I'm being misled. Now, if the disciples of Jesus, who knew him well and had now seen him alive again a couple of times, could doubt, how much easier is it for us, who have certainly never witnessed the resurrection of the dead? to experience doubt and fear about death, both the death of those that we know and love and, of course, our own death. If an intelligent adult Christian who has been in the faith for any decent amount of time can honestly say to me that they have never experienced a period of doubt and the anxiety that comes with it, well, I'm not going to call them a liar, but something isn't right there. That doesn't add up to me. Maybe it's yet to come. Maybe that's just a, a late bloomer. And not that I have any say about who can be a pastor and who cannot. But if I did, I would put a rule in place that nobody who goes into, no one can go into pastoral ministry unless they have had an experience like that. Because they're going to be ministering to people who have and who will. Now, I don't want to make this about me, but I also know that what I'm going to say now applies to a lot of people. A surprising number, in fact. According to the 2016-2017 health survey, 19%, almost a fifth, pretty much a fifth of adults in New Zealand lived with anxiety at a a level classified as mild or greater. So not just nothing. You could say that person has anxiety, right? They're at that point. And 20% with depression at the same level. Now, that's not 40% of the population because a lot of those people would be in in both groups, but it's still a substantial chunk of the adult population of this country. I'm one of those adults, and one of the features of living with depression for some time is a tendency to not have hope and to experience the sort of doubt that I'm talking about here to a significant degree. I'm not talking about rational doubt, though. Right? I'm not talking about someone who who loses the faith in the sense that they say, you know what, there's actually good evidence that this is not true. I think my reasons weren't good enough. That would be a rational doubt. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the feeling that a person has that could perhaps be at times be described as a belief that what he hopes for is not true, even though he knows that on the whole, he has every reason to believe it. Right? That's what I'm talking about, the feeling of doubt that these disciples had, even though they could see Jesus. A helpful analogy would be a man on an international flight who jumps up the and says, the plane's going to crash. And in that moment, he actually thinks that it is, but he knows it's not. Right. If you yeah, then in time he remembers why he was willing to get on the plane in the first place. He knows that the pilots will get him there and he doesn't actually have any reason to think that the plane's going to fall apart. But in that moment, that's what he thinks. That's how it seems to him. Not for any good reason, but he feels that way, right? There are plenty of people who have that tendency just because of the way their brain works which compounds the more general fact that people do have a tendency to doubt the promises of the gospel. So that when we approach this already burning bonfire and we pour on the gasoline by telling people that they don't have a soul and even God doesn't promise that they're going to escape their body to be with them when they die, they're just going to be dead, we have to realize that there's going to be some fallout. right? Significant in some cases. Now, against this already hazardous backdrop, we've got to live with knowing. Right, so against this already hazardous backdrop, the backdrop of the fact that we doubt generally, the fact that some people are predisposed to doubt in really unhelpful and frequent ways, we've got to cope with knowing that we perish in death. We will really be dead, and we go to our grave hoping and trusting in the promise of God to bring us back out. The scepticism that comes naturally to us is the one that is found in Job 14.14. If a man dies, will he live again? That just seems incredible. Could even God pull that off? I'm going to assume that we all know what apologetics is, the defense of the truth of the Christian faith. Apologetics is something that I've always had an interest in for, I guess, all sorts of reasons. And knowing what I know about the human mind, I don't even know what my reasons are and I could be wrong about them. Maybe it's just that I'm a dude who likes to argue. Maybe it's just that I'm a bit of a nerd. Well, it is, actually. I and mean, that's okay. And sometimes you'll hear from people who aren't naturally disposed to do apologetics or to read it or to listen to it. That maybe it's just a waste of time, it's just a lot of philosophical head knowledge, you'll hear that term, head knowledge, you need heart knowledge. No one, they might say, you've probably heard this, maybe I have, because of my involvement in apologetics, they might say, nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. They might say that. If you've got someone in your church like that, please do the spiritual well-being of everyone else in your church a big favor and never put them in a position of ministry. Whether it's behind the pulpit or working with the youth or anything else, they're a hazard. Firstly, it's not true that nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom. Of course, the Holy Spirit will be at work, making people known, I'm sorry, making God known to people and changing their hearts. But if this guy didn't just sit around throwing stones at apologetics, but he actually paid attention, he would soon see that the Holy Spirit very often uses the tools of Christian apologetics to persuade people to drop their objections to Christ. That's reality. Some of the people who are most enthusiastic about apologetics are those who were not always Christians but for whom the barriers to faith were broken down by good evidence and arguments, whether it's general arguments that God is real or good arguments about the reliability of the Gospels or something else. Your church needs to engage in apologetics. Why? Well, there are lots of reasons, but mostly here's why. In my own very worst times, the way that I managed to salvage hope in the end was, well, there are a few things going on, actually. The first is to recognize what I was experiencing, not rational doubt, compounded by this discovery of these great new biblical teachings, which were really horrible, but emotional doubt. The feeling of doubt, which, if left unchecked, Can lead you to beliefs that you have no good reason to hold and can lead people away from the faith for no good reason because they get out of control there's an apologist named Gary Habermas very good at what he does and he pointed out one time people don't always like to be told that they're being controlled by their emotions especially guys we're we're these tough rational beings we're emotions of girls guys don't really think that way but there there is a little bit of that attitude going on They think that they're all about the brain. Well, emotions control far more about thinking than you might think. That's another subject. So the first thing is to recognize that what you're experiencing is a feeling, not a reason. When you're awake in the middle of the night, turning over the thought, what if, which is the most useless, harmful thought you could have sometimes, what if, it might go like this? You might not be consciously thinking these thoughts. Maybe these are just impressions that will go through your mind. Gosh, it's a dark night. I'm cold, and I didn't have a good day today. I'm upset with that person. I'm not feeling great about it. And all this talk about me not having a soul, so that death is just nothing until resurrection—that's got me thinking. So my grandparents or my parents who have died aren't anywhere out there, and I'm—I'm going to die one day. And what if there's nothing? what if it's just not true after all what if there's never anything after death and I'm just gone and it goes on and on spiraling out of control what if you know what you should do in situations like that go to sleep (laughs) probably (laughs) you haven't just come to some profound new realization you're tired and your, your unhelpful thoughts powered by nothing more than feelings are getting the better of you recognize that to begin with Because then you don't have to say, gosh, I'm falling away from the faith. No, you're not. This is just not helpful. And you need to just rein it in. Right? Recognize that. And in the same talk about doubt, which I do recommend, Gary had a mess on doubt. He's a talk out there. um, He gave some advice about what to do when your mind starts running away like that. It's really technical. Right? When someone says that, you know, you're being sarcastic. This, this, this advice is what you need to do is you need to take yourself by the proverbial collars and say, shut up. Just zip it. You're not helping yourself with endless what-ifs. The other thing to do, and I can tell you that this is effective, is to take stock. When you, when you find this sort of thing happening, say to yourself, okay, are there good reasons to believe that God is there and He's made Himself known to us in the person of His Son, Jesus, whom He raised from the dead? Well, yes, I, you know, that's not, nothing that's going on, going on here has changed that. Yes, that's true. Good. Okay, take stock of that. This is why apologetics matters for people who are already Christians. Right? These are truths that you can call to mind. You can say, look, I know how I'm feeling right now, and what I've just been talking about with all these conditionalists, and they've, and they've persuaded me, has made it worse But I can see what this is. This is not truth. This is just the fickle power of chemicals and emotion, and I have not forgotten that I know there is a solid foundation, in fact, for the hope that I have, no matter what's currently fizzing in my brain. Right? Recognizing that you are a physical creature should tip you off to the fact that all this stuff going on, you don't have to call it a spiritual attack. It's just you. You, you You're you're an animal, and it's not always a good thing, and, and you can get that under control. The truth that Scripture tells us about human nature and death, once Christians come to accept it, will have an impact, which when combined with some rather unhelpful tendencies we have, especially if you've got a brain that works like mine, and like that have a lot of other people, is sobering, to put it mildly. It is important that we don't just redirect people to the genuine hope of Scripture, namely the resurrection of Christ and His promise to give us what He now has, although we must do that. But we support the effort to show that this hope really is founded in the truth. All right? Did you know that people are afraid to die? Right. Like so many systematic theology textbooks, we're going to end up talking about hell at the end. It seems to be the way, sort of the last chapter on last things, and then we end up talking about hell. It does tie into what I've said about death and fear. Those who believe that everyone lives forever and that it's just a matter of location, heaven or hell, will sometimes comment on conditional immortality as follows. They will say, eternal torment is scary. Being snuffed out of existence forever, that's not scary. There's no need to name names, but you've probably heard this before. Being annihilated forever is just not bad enough of a punishment. It's not frightful or fearful enough. As though that's how you tell what's true, somehow. I've even read well-known and well-respected defenders of the doctrine of eternal torment who say it's just not that bad to be gone forever. But hell, that's really bad. So it can't just be a matter of no longer existing forever. It must be eternal torment. One thing I find fascinating is to read or listen to the personal accounts of people who have gone public about the fact that they used to be Christians, but now, in their view at least, they've come to their senses, and they no longer are. One of the things that I've seen some of these people say is that when they were Christians— They were surrounded by people who believed things that made you have to say things that made it sound to everyone else in the world like you were insane. You speak a kind of Christianese, where ideas that anyone else would think are totally mad somehow get baptized into being cherished beliefs that you proclaim. And this is one of those beliefs. It's not really that bad to be destroyed and gone forever. Nobody but a proponent of eternal torment could ever say that the prospect of annihilation when you could have had eternal life is not frightening. Why not just say that annihilationism isn't what the Bible teaches? I mean, if that's what you think, then say that. But you don't have to bend over backwards and sound completely crazy by adding on, and by the way, it's not even scary, He's a Christian apologist named Clay Jones, with whom I've interacted recently. And he wrote a book not too long ago called Immortal, how the fear of death drives us and what we can do about it. I haven't read it in detail. I've had a browse through and it actually looks really good. Um, Jones tells us that when people tell us that they don't fear death, then what they say is really not true. He says, and I quote, Even though many psychologists, anthropologists, and most importantly, scripture, tells us that humans fear death, if you ask people if they fear their own death, most will say no. I didn't know that. But when they find a lump, have a chest pain, or receive a positive blood test, their fear of death towers in front of them, and it won't leave the room. Nothing gets on to something. People might give lip service to sound brave by saying, no, no, I don't fear death. But when they're faced with it, it may be a different story. Now, Jones cites evidence from many individuals, as well as psychologists and sociologists, for death being the most basic and pervasive of all human fears. One of my favorite examples, just for its imagery, is his quote from Solomon, Greenberg, and Buszynski, psychologists, I believe, who claim that if people had an ongoing awareness of their vulnerability and mortality, they would be reduced to twitching blobs of biological protoplasm completely perfused with anxiety and unable to effectively respond to the demands of their immediate surroundings. Picturesque language, but I think it's kind of right. You'd always be be thinking about the fact that you're just going to be gone, and it could be any day. The examples that Jones gives in his book is are sobering. He openly refers to the fear of death, the terror of death. And he even, almost sounding like a conditionalist, which he is not, says that the fear of death is what compels everyone to seek some salvation. And he goes on to quote Romans 2.7, where St. Paul talks about seeking and finding immortality in Christ. In Christ, Well, that's kind of what we talk about all the time in this group, isn't it? But then, just a little while ago, while this book was still a recent publication, and here's where I came to interact with him. He doesn't like me now. Dr. Jones wrote a blog post about how annihilationism, which is what we believe about hell, is really just a friend of atheism, because it doesn't provide anything scary at all. And he quotes a number of atheists who say that they don't fear death, he quotes Charles Darwin, who said that he wasn't the least bit afraid to die. He quoted Epicurus, the philosopher who said that death is nothing. He quoted atheist Sam Harris, saying that in death there is nothing to worry about. And he quotes Mark Twain, saying that in death, a death is just a holiday. And he says, see, people aren't afraid to die, and that annihilationism is just death. So it's not really scary. And I'm like, who wrote this? Is this the same guy who just wrote a book about how people, in spite of what they say, actually do fear death? And there is overwhelming evidence for that. Which version of Clay Jones wrote this article? This is crazy talk. And it's not even honest. I mean, he's saying one thing and then he's saying another. Nobody thinks that death is a holiday. If they do, there is something wrong with them. Life is what enables relationships with ourselves, with each other, and with God. Life is the only way that we can have any potential, any thoughts, any joy, anything that can be called good. And Jesus taught that he came to give us not merely life, but an abundant one, one that is both everlasting and good. Now, I know that most of what I've said you probably already know. Hopefully I've brought some useful things to the surface of your mind, though. In teaching what we believe Scripture teaches, we are asking our fellow Christians to give up something that is very dear to them, and that has consequences. Consequences that we often don't really take stock of. We think it's just a matter of winning the argument and showing them this is the truth and getting them to change their minds. It's good, but it's not enough. Combined with our very human tendency to lack trust and to doubt, especially for those who already struggle to find joy and hope in spite of their faith in Christ, we need to speak the truth in love and not just be right. We need to be pastoral. That is the church's role in the world. We also need to appreciate the value of reason in our faith and work on building a church that equips its members with the tools of apologetics, of examining the solid foundations of the truth that gives us hope through the saving power of God and the resurrection of Christ. And we need to put distance between ourselves and what sounds like complete madness in the name of the gospel. Taking that basic primal fear from which Christ came to deliver us and pretending that really it's no big deal so that we can get people focused in the idea that what really matters is keeping them out of hell and not giving them eternal life. It's, again, focus on the hope of the gospel that is so easily obscured by the tangular threads of popular religion, the hope that we are reminded of, on what I will close with from the second chapter of Hebrews. Since these children are people with physical bodies, Jesus himself became like them. He did this so that by dying, he could destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil and free those who were like slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. So let's be a part of that liberating work. Say hello to my little friend!